Hi, my name is Gail Saben with the COVID-19 Health Equity Dashboard Podcast. Today we're talking to Dr. Robert Bednarzik, an Associate Professor of Global Health and Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Bednarzik. Thank you, Gail. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your work in vaccines and both during the COVID-19 pandemic and previously? I've been studying the uptake of vaccines and the determinants around that uptake, including vaccine hesitance, for approximately 15 years now, going back to doing my doctoral studies in infectious disease epidemiology. And one of the, the things that really came together for me was working on my PhD in epidemiology in 2009 when the H1N1 influenza pandemic occurred. And that gave me the opportunity to work both with the New York State Health Department on their pandemic response, um, as well as the other position that I was working at the time, which was assistant to chair for the U.S. National Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, So I was able to see both state and federal response to a pandemic, including a vaccine rollout. And a lot of the lessons that were learned during that time have really come in handy as we've thought through the earliest stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, now leading up to the current days of uh, mass vaccine rollout across the U.S. And what are some of the lessons that you've seen applied from the H1N1 pandemic to the vaccine rollout now? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest lessons is to be able to understand and embrace uncertainty, especially with as much as things change on a day-to-day basis, and in some cases, a minute-to-minute basis, where we know that what we knew yesterday may not be the same as, as what we're going to know today. And we saw that come through in earliest days of the pandemic, and we really saw a lot of that come through with the rollout of the vaccines uncertainties around vaccine availability, uncertainties around vaccine allocations, and the specific recommendations on who should be first in line to get vaccinated and how we would get vaccines out to those individuals. So sadly, I think a lot of the lessons that that we learned in 2009 were in the back of people's minds, but it did feel a little bit like through COVID-19, we've been having to reinvent a lot of these processes. And I'm hoping that we can learn from this so that should another pandemic occur, we'll be much better prepared to, to move forward much faster. So you're, you're pointing out some of the lessons that were maybe learned and not applied, or that there'll be a lot more lessons to learn from COVID-19. Can you speak to any of the successes that you've seen in the vaccine rollout for COVID-19 and whether maybe some of those reflected lessons that were learned in H1N1 or maybe just new developments that have really struck you as being very positive? Yeah, so in in 2009, one of the the big differences that, that we saw was that that was a pandemic that mostly affected younger individuals, uh, primarily children and adolescents, where we have a very strong vaccination infrastructure. Um, so we know that we have a network of pediatricians who are available to vaccinate. We have the, the networks through the Vaccines for Children program, for example. And I think that when COVID-19 emerged and, and we started to realize that the populations that were going to be most greatly affected were typically adults and and in many cases, older adults, Um, it it changed a little bit on how we thought about some of the the vaccine allocation and and vaccine distribution. 
Um, so I think that's a situation where maybe some of the, the lessons that were learned were not as readily applicable. Uh, but I think that we, we did a very good job of adjusting to the situation with, with COVID-19 uh, in terms of getting uh, state immunization and information systems on board, uh, with getting you know, new vaccine distribution systems going. So you know, whereas in 2009, we saw a lot of use of traditional pediatric office-based vaccine services, here we saw a little bit more of the rollout of, of mass vaccination sites, uh, more engagement with pharmacies. And I think that some of that was, was really built off of what had come out of 2009, where some of those systems were tested maybe for the first time. It may not have been used as widely, but, but it gave us a solid base to, to move forward on. And I think that was one of the, the places where we've seen some success with COVID-19 vaccine distribution. That's great. It's been able to work out that way. At this point, looking at the latest data, it looks like we've reached about 53% partial or full vaccination for the U.S. as a whole. And we've got about just under 45% that are fully vaccinated. One of the goals of the new administration was to get 70% of Americans vaccinated by July 4th, which is at this point in about two weeks. Based on where we are now, does that seem doable nationally? Yeah, so I think that it is doable if we come together and if we have a very strong commitment, um, not just within public health, but across the entire population. Um, a, a commitment to protect ourselves and protect our communities and protect our neighbors by going out and getting vaccinated. One piece of data that I saw uh, just this morning that I think was pointing us in the right direction um, is that currently 14 states have reached that 70% benchmark. So this is, is showing that it can be achieved. It's showing that, that we can reach these goals where there is a strong commitment. And I think in places where we are falling behind, we have to do a better job of going out, um, speaking with the community, um, working with community leaders, uh, reaching out through all of our networks. And, and not just through our, our public health networks, but through our community networks, our faith communities, et cetera, to really get the message out there that we have a safe and effective vaccine that is widely available, which I think is, is very different than, than where we were at just a few months ago, where there were so many issues with making appointments and scheduling to, to get vaccinated. Now we have vaccine available. Um, there still are some issues in terms of geographic equity uh, of just individuals who may not be able to easily get to a vaccination site, but there's been work done in, in that regard. You know, here in, in DeKalb County, the DeKalb County Board of Health, for example, is running uh, mobile vaccination clinics where they can actually go out to individuals who may be homebound, um, individuals who may not be able to get to a, a vaccination center to get them vaccinated. So seeing some of these new initiatives uh, really gives me hope that we can reach a broader part of the population. You mentioned that there are certain areas that 14 states, I believe you said, that have reached 70%. What are some, some areas that you're concerned are lagging behind? So are there particular states that you're concerned about 
or is it more within states there's geographically certain areas that are struggling more than others you know to get vaccines out or to increase vaccine uptake some of the the states where we've seen a lot of success tend to be more densely populated states or states with with smaller populations overall um, where it is just easier to to do that outreach and when we see that across areas of the the american south and, and midwest um, where you don't have that same population density where it's there's just more distance to go to get to medical care and, and to get to vaccination centers I think may be a, a challenge that, that we need to continue facing. When you consider that in light of vaccine hesitance, uh, when you consider that in light of um, individuals who, who may not trust the vaccine or trust the, the systems that are supporting these vaccination efforts, uh, it really highlights the need for doing this committed community-based outreach to speak with these individuals and to speak with these populations to really be able to listen to their concerns and answer their questions so that we hopefully can reach these goals uh, through much greater uh, vaccine availability and access. So in addition to geographically some concerns about less densely populated states having trouble with access or reaching people who are maybe farther from a clinic or farther from a center where they can get access to vaccines. What are the patterns, if any, that we're seeing in terms of vaccine uptake or vaccination coverage demographically? You've pointed to certain differences that were geographic, but are there demographic differences or is it kind of similar across across the country? We've seen some differences in the typical health disparities that, that we often observe. Uh, where we are seeing lower vaccine uptake among African-American and Latinx populations. But even along with that, um, we've seen a lot of vaccine hesitance coming from, in particular, white evangelical Christians. This is showing us that these concerns about the vaccine are not limited to just one section of the population. And I think that when we look at these demographic differences in vaccine uptake, it helps us to identify communities where we need to do a better job of outreach. But I think it's important to remember that these communities are not identical in terms of their vaccine attitudes, even within these communities. And some people may be more accepting and some people may be less accepting, even within these demographic groupings. I bring that up because it's important to not just rely on the shorthand of looking at these demographic categories and, and saying, well, this group isn't getting vaccinated enough. Uh, we need to understand the, the complexity of some of that. So a lot of the, the work that we're doing and all of our colleagues are doing is really trying to use some of these initial demographics to help identify communities where we need to, to do a better job of outreach but then not assuming that everyone is going to think or feel the same within these communities um, and really going out to the communities and speaking with them so that we can understand specific concerns that they may have so that we can better address those. So you're talking about hesitance and, you know, people maybe needing to be reached out to a little bit more to talk about the vaccine. Do you feel like what's driving low vaccination uptake in certain areas or in certain populations is mostly due to 
vaccine hesitancy or is it access to vaccines? Is it a combination? Is that similar for all the different demographics that you mentioned? Are there specific issues for specific populations? I think that there are some specific issues for some specific populations with generations of systemic racism and medical maltreatment that can lead to a lack of trust in the vaccination systems um, among the African-American population in a greater level than, than we may see for other demographic groups. But again, these groupings are, are not going to all be seen the same way. And some of the, the concerns that, that we see may be moving outside of just a, a lack of trust in the vaccine or a lack of belief in the, the safety of the vaccine, but maybe just personal risk-benefit calculation. If they've made it through this far in the pandemic and they haven't gotten sick, is it really worth going out and getting vaccinated? And I think these are personal decisions that people are making that may not always be rooted in best science. Just because you've made it through 15 months of the pandemic without getting infected uh, doesn't mean that, that, that it can't happen tomorrow. And that's why it's, it's so important for everyone to be as protected as possible. So we need to take some of those considerations um, into our work. Um, and, and also thinking about, you know, again, access issues, the convenience of being able to get vaccinated, um, when we look at groups like hourly workers and, and essential workers who may not always have access to paid sick time, um, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to the side effects after the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and some people may not feel that they could take a day or two off of work if they ended up um, getting hit with a bad round of side effect. And because of that, they, they may choose to take their chances and, and not get vaccinated. So we need to be aware of, of all of these different perceptions and figure out the best way to address these concerns that may require much more tailoring as, as we go out and talk with different people. That's very helpful. Earlier, you mentioned some of the more innovative ways that groups have been trying to reach communities especially in cases of lack of access. So you mentioned mobile clinics, larger vaccine clinics in certain areas that might have lower access. Are there any other either creative or less creative ways that you've seen communities or states in the U.S. as a whole trying to boost vaccination that you think are working? Initially, I think many of us in public health were caught by a little bit of surprise when, when we saw the, the state of Ohio announcing their lottery system for individuals who had gotten vaccinated against COVID-19. My initial reaction was that it's, it's a good way to motivate people who maybe aren't hesitant about the vaccine, who, who believe that the vaccine is worth getting, but just need that extra push to get up, get in the car, go to a vaccination site and, and get the vaccine. What it may not address are some of the, the concerns around the effectiveness of the vaccine, the safety of the vaccine, or trust in the systems that have produced the vaccine. And that's where I think that you know we need to be cautious in the amount of money and resources that are put into some of these very large incentive programs to um, in, ensure that, that we're not taking that money away from core public health functions. But other organizations have started doing very similar types of incentives 
um, but maybe on a smaller scale. We've seen Krispy Kreme donuts, for example, announced that, that individuals who bring in their vaccination card can get free donuts. There have been situations in Louisiana where there were crawfish giveaways for um, individuals who got vaccinated. There's actually even been some bars that have done a shot for a shot night um, where they had a mobile vaccination van set up and anybody who got vaccinated that night would get a free drink. Um, so I think that there's been a lot of new opportunities to think outside the box and reach people where they're at. And I think when, when we look at some of these issues of convenience, of maybe individual complacency, going to people and, and reaching them where they're at instead of making them come out to you for the vaccine may be a useful way to boost some of our vaccine uptake. Do you see that as being helpful for people who are hesitant for reasons other than access. For example, for people who are maybe more hesitant, unsure about the effectiveness or unsure about side effects, have you seen any incentives or any programs put into place to really reach those people that you feel have been effective? So I think that a lot of the outreach activities that, that have been occurring, um, you know, especially when we see for, for African-American and Latinx communities, for example, um, having community events where, where we see leaders in these communities getting vaccinated. So people can now start to see um, people who, who look like them getting the vaccine. That can go a very long way in terms of making this more normalized and establishing vaccination as a social norm. So when you combine those events with education and with ease of access, uh, we've seen a lot of successes in, in that regard. So I think all of these efforts that are being put in place are really starting to have an effect. You know, we've seen vaccine uptake increase with the, the data that, that you mentioned before, with about 53% of the entire U.S. population having at least one dose of the vaccine. We're actually seeing about 65% of people 18 and older who have had at least one dose of the vaccine. And that recommendation has been in place for a little bit longer than for the 12 to 17 year olds. And you know, as of right now, um, individuals under 12 um, are not recommended for the vaccine. When we get out to the, the groups that, that we're really trying to reach, we're, we're doing a, a very good job. What we need to recognize now is that while vaccine numbers are going up, and case numbers are going down, that doesn't mean that we can stop. That doesn't mean that we can be complacent. Uh, we've seen new variants of the virus emerge. And this gives us pause to, to recognize that just because we may feel like we're done with the pandemic, the pandemic is not done with us um, until we can get all of the vaccine coverage up. And that's why it's so important for everyone who is recommended for vaccination and able to get vaccinated um, to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Good point. As you mentioned earlier on, we've got about 14 states that have reached the 70% threshold. And so some states have started completely opening up and removing the remaining restrictions. Do you feel like the threshold of 70% or 80%, depending on the state for reopening, is a good one? So pinning reopening to a specific vaccine coverage benchmark may miss a, a few important considerations. One, just because 70% of a state is vaccinated doesn't mean that that other 30% are evenly distributed across the state. And if those individuals are living in closer proximity to each other, if, if they tend to be clustered closer to each other, it's easier to see local outbreaks of disease occur among those groups. So that's one thing that I think that we need to be very aware of. 
The other thing is that if we pin everything to a, a singular benchmark number and we start getting closer to that number, my concern is that some people may say, well, we're so close and I really don't want to get the vaccine, but it seems like everybody else is getting it. So now I don't have to. And I don't want that to become normalized. So that's why I'm, I'm not a huge fan of linking everything to these benchmarks. I, I think the benchmarks are great to keep pushing us forward. But when we look at things like states reopening, removing restrictions around businesses, whether it be the number of people uh, allowed in a specific place or mask requirements, for example, it's important to know that once those restrictions are officially removed, just because the, the current CDC guidance says that fully vaccinated individuals can go about things without masks and without physical distancing, it doesn't mean that they have to. And if people still want to take some of those other precautions, that only serves to help support the greater public health. Lastly, bringing us back to what you were talking about at the very beginning about lessons learned from H1N1 that may or may not have been implemented for COVID. You mentioned that through this pandemic, we were also learning new lessons about different issues, both for vaccines and across the board. Are there any lessons that you feel have been learned at this point that will be useful going forward or anything else that you hope is kept in mind in terms of vaccine distribution, vaccine equity? those kinds of areas of this pandemic for the future? One of the the big lessons that I think we've learned from this is that historically much of our pandemic preparedness has focused around influenza pandemics. And now with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's highlighted for us that it's not just a situation of being concerned around influenza, where we have a vaccine that, that we've used for decades. It may not always be the best vaccine, but, but we have a long track record of, of using influenza vaccines and being able to adapt them pretty quickly. This pandemic, I think, has shown us that there are many other possibilities of, of diseases that can emerge and, and can greatly impact us as a species. So having a broader view of what it means to be prepared is an important consideration moving forward. I think that the ability to accelerate research that has been ongoing, but, but maybe sitting on the shelf a little bit more than we would have liked, such as the mRNA vaccines, really gives us the ability to plan for future pandemics. And you know, we've even seen a lot of vaccine manufacturers starting to think about ways to utilize this mRNA technology for other diseases that we haven't been able to successfully develop vaccines against. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are some very good opportunities that have come out of this pandemic. Sure. And I think that because of that, it opens a lot of doors for greater protection of public health, not just in an emergency setting, but against maybe some of the, the more routine things that we face every year, like influenza. One of the hard things that has come out, though, with these new technologies and the mRNA vaccines is learning how to communicate with the public about them, because it is a new technology, at least to be used on this large scale. And that's raised a lot of questions. And it feels like throughout most of this pandemic, those of us who do 
this type of response or who study infectious diseases have been in a very reactive mode of addressing the issues when they come up, as opposed to having the ability to be proactive and, and be able to get good messaging out there. So I'm hoping that that's one of the lessons we can take from this is, is that need to capitalize on, on a greater public awareness of science right now and use this to help improve public understanding of public health and disease control and prevention. Great. Do you think there's any larger lessons that are going to be applied to tackling health disparities, whether it's for vaccine coverage or other health disparities that you were pointing to? Throughout a lot of the outreach that has occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen so much engagement of community organizations. We've seen so much real work to bring people together and, and to bring these community partners together. And what I'm hoping is that once we're able to fully emerge from COVID-19, that we don't lose all of that community engagement that that has come about. Because I think that that would be a huge missed opportunity and one area where we can use these networks and we can use these linkages to address other important diseases and, and other areas where we see a tremendous amount of health disparities. Well, on that note, thank you very much. All right, thank you.